X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Monday, September 14th. As Oregonians face the impacts of wildfires across the state, Governor Jansley would call them climate fires, we hope you are safe. Today, back in the day, September 14th, 1941, 2,000 people marched on Washington to protest police brutality. In 1936, Leonard Basie, a black man working for the Civilian Conservation Corps, the CCC, was arrested by a white D.C. officer. That night, he'd been walking with his colleagues through a predominantly white neighborhood. According to his peers, when Basie questioned the reason for his arrest, the officer threatened to, quote, fill him full of lead. The officer then shot him point blank in the abdomen. That officer, Vivian Landrum, would later claim self-defense. Testimony from witnesses eventually caused that story to unravel. Even still, Landrum was exonerated. The press would eventually report that Landrum had a record of violence against blacks, but D.C. officials refused to bring charges. Over the following years, more instances of police brutality against black people rocked the District of Columbia, and public opinion shifted more and more away from the police. Then in early August 1941, three more black men were killed by D.C. police. At a funeral service for two of those men, Reverend Stephen Gill Spotswood said, and I'm quoting, they are but symbols, these two men, typical of what might happen to any of us. Every officer involved in those killings was exonerated. On September 14th, 2,000 people took to the streets of D.C. demanding justice for the victims of police brutality. They called for the hiring of black police officers and for a citizen's trial board and that officers involved in killings be held accountable. And only a few months later in 1941, the United States entered World War II and the nation's attention shifted away from transformation of policing. And now today, in this day, this election, Portlanders will be voting in November about a review board not entirely different from that Citizens Trial Board proposed 79 years ago in D.C. We'll start with your quick six news headlines, and we'll have an interview with District 52 Representative Anna Williams. X-ray. First up, it is time for today's quick six local rundown. Portland is number one in the world for terrible air quality. Portland's air actually worsened between Saturday and Sunday. Measurements got up to 516 on the air quality index, according to the API. By the way, the scale goes up to 500. Parts of Portland's air quality exceeded the most dangerous level the Environmental Protection Agency lists on their index. Those numbers only impacted certain areas of the city. IQAir.com, an international air quality monitoring website, said our overall number was closer to 229 Sunday morning. That number is still deemed unhealthy for everyone. Roseburg, Oregon, clocked in on Sunday at 579 on the AQI. As of Sunday, 10 people have died from the fires in Oregon. Many more are missing. Similar fires across the West Coast have killed 22 people in California and one in Washington so far. Meanwhile, the Oregon State Fire Marshal has resigned his office. Jim Walker was placed on leave on Saturday, but resigned soon after. Walker had acted as fire marshal since 2014. His paid leave was connected to a personnel investigation, according to a state police spokesperson. No other details have yet been released. Mariana Ruiz Temple has been named the new state fire marshal. Ruiz Temple had been appointed acting fire marshal when Walker was put on leave. Your daily dose of coronavirus data. Under 200 new cases, 185 actually new cases of the coronavirus have been discovered. Five new deaths. That brings the total confirmed case number to 29,337. And Oregon's death toll has passed 500, actually to 509. In response to the fire still raging through the state, the health authority has released guidelines for evacuating while infected. 
Smoke affects the recovery of patients fighting the coronavirus and may make transmission of the disease even easier. However, the health authority released a statement saying, and I'm quoting, regardless of disease status, if you are asked or ordered to evacuate, you should do so. The OHA also recommended that people in quarantine reach out to their local public health authorities for suggestions on how to remain isolated while evacuating. Other tips include keeping a mask on at all times, practicing social distancing, stay back, and letting evacuation officials know that you are quarantining. Older adults or people with disabilities can reach out to the Aging and Disabilities Resource Connection for more information. They can be reached at 855-673-2372. Didn't have a pen? You can rewind or I can say again, 855-673-2372. The Oregon congressional delegation is requesting immediate aid from FEMA. The delegation is asking for, and I'm quoting, the greatest possible range of assistant programs as requested, end quote, by Governor Kate Brown to help people displaced by wildfires this week. The state has asked President Trump to declare a major disaster, which would authorize more aid from FEMA. On Thursday, Trump had declared an emergency disaster from the state, but that does not trigger aid to individuals. That federal declaration came days after Governor Brown declared a state of emergency. Oregon lawmakers are also requesting that FEMA waive state cost share requirements so that survivors may be given stable shelter more quickly. Specific costs that FEMA has been requested to cover include hotel rooms for displaced people, restoring infrastructure, and removing debris. So far, FEMA has deployed search and rescue teams, and trailers filled with meals, water, and cots have been delivered to the state. Mayor Wheeler will be handing off some city bureaus to the new city commissioner. In Portland, each city council member runs a portfolio of bureaus. The mayor decides who gets what. Dan Ryan was elected in August in the special election and was sworn in as the newest city commissioner just last Thursday. combination of COVID-19 and wildfire smoke kept it from being a large public affair, but Dan Ryan is now a city councilor, replacing the deceased Nick Fish. Rest in peace. And the mayor's office has announced that Dan Ryan will be put in charge of a number of bureaus previously managed by the mayor. Those include the head of the Joint Office of Homeless Services, the Bureau of Development Services, that's the people who help with permitting, and the Portland Children's Levy. The mayor also announced that Commissioner Joanne Hardesty will be taking over the Bureau of Planning and Sustainability. As expected, Wheeler has not given up the Police Bureau. Hardesty had been vocal about wanting to take over the Police Bureau since July. Commissioner Chloe Udaly is up for re-election in November, and Carmen Rubio has won her election, and she'll be sworn in after that as well. And Wheeler has stated that after the election, all bureaus will be available for reassignment. And in some protest news, some positive findings after tear gas was banned last Thursday. Residue from that gas, the CS gas deployed by police, has not significantly impacted the Willamette River. Phew! I want to go for a swim, and I don't know if my goggles are rated for CS gas. The Bureau of Environmental Services released a report last Thursday saying that no significant tear gas chemicals impacted the river. The study did find higher levels of metals and other chemicals associated with tear gas in their samples, but these elevated levels were not observed near storm basin outlets, suggesting that the river is not largely impacted. The study took samples from manholes and storm drains on August 6 near Lounsdale Square, where most of the tear gas has been deployed. Critics have pointed out that this study is incomplete, as it didn't have a sample from the other sites around Portland where police have used tear gas on protesters. But let's at least hope I don't have to get new tear gas goggles if I'm going to go swimming in the Willamette. And Joey Gibson, leader of the far-right group Patriot Prayer, is suing Mike Schmidt, the Multnomah County District Attorney. Back in May of 2019, Joey Gibson and Russell Schultz, another Patriot Prayer member, got in a brawl with counter-protesters and patrons outside a bar in northeast Portland. Six members of the right-wing group were indicted in August of that year. 
Now Gibson and Schultz are accusing Multnomah County's new DA of selectively charging them and treating that as retaliation. The two filed a 28-page complaint on Friday in federal court are seeking a restraining order and injunction in their cases. The two have pleaded not guilty. Their trials are set to begin October 26th. Among the six involved, one has pleaded guilty and the other pleaded no contest. The complaint criticized the recent decision by the DA not to pursue low-level charges against the protesters that have been active against racism and police brutality this year. To be clear, though, from the beginning, Multnomah County District Attorney Mike Schmidt has said that violent crimes like arson and assault would be prosecuted by his office. And a little ripple of hope. Cyclists in Ashland, Oregon, have been bringing supplies to those trapped in by the fire. A group of cyclists from Ashland have been getting water and food to the nearby towns of Talent and Phoenix. Cars are not allowed to enter the town as they pose an extra risk to the fires that have been spreading since last Tuesday. So nearly 100 cyclists, known as the Ashland Bike Brigade, brought pet food, water, sandwiches, and other supplies to the people, and pets presumably, of those towns who have been without electricity or potable water. The volunteers actually said they had a hard time giving some of the supplies away as residents would tell them there were people worse off than they were. Volunteers also said they saw some cars sneaking in supplies to people in need. Some volunteers even offered crisis counseling. There are wonderful people doing beautiful things. Jackson County Public Health will be compiling a list of mental health professionals for people who need crisis support. And that is today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Next up, we have an interview with Representative Anna Williams, candidate for House District 52. You can find out more at friendsofannawilliams.com. There are less than two months until the November election. As a reminder, the voter registration deadline in Oregon is October 13th. Here are Representative Anna Williams and Jefferson Smith. Joining us right now is Representative Anna Williams, Democratic incumbent for House District 52, which includes parts of Clackamas, Multnomah, and Hood River counties. Representative, good morning. Good morning. How is your world, any of your, what of your district is being impacted by the fires right now? The entire Clackamas County portion of the district is um, under at least a level one or level two evacuation. Many folks have been evacuated under the level three, um, and we're still waiting to see what damage occurred um, yesterday afternoon and overnight. It's a bit beyond the ambit of a state representative, but I'm sure it's something that you get a couple emails, some phone calls, and certainly you care about. How do you engage during a time like this, and or what, what are ways that people should be helping? The ways that people can help, um, you know, most directly is to donate to the Red Cross and to look into volunteering for the Red Cross. We sent out a newsletter yesterday to the um, to everyone in my district with information about how to sign up to volunteer and find out if you're eligible. Um, checking in on family and friends that live in the area, making sure they have a place to go and that they're planned if they need to evacuate their packing, those kinds of things. Um, as far as what I'm doing, we um, have a team of about 10 volunteers that are calling folks in the Clackamas County part of the district to check in on them and offer them local resources, help them find their evacuation point, uh, figure out what to do with horses or livestock they may have that may also need to be evacuated. Um, so we're just trying to be as, as directly supportive as we can to the folks who are struggling so we can get through this and then figure out you know, next steps down the road when we're through the crisis. Well, let's talk about you for a bit. You're relatively new in the state legislature. You're running right now for re-election. But let's talk a little about your background. Started as a social worker. Well, started, started as a baby like all of us did. But you're, earlier you were a social worker. Do I have that right? Yeah. I was um, a social worker. Um, 
primarily in uh, domestic and sexual violence response. I also worked uh, with elder care and home care workers um, trying to to help support our aging population, especially in rural communities where, um, in Oregon, we're aging more rapidly in our rural parts of the state. Uh, So figuring out some concrete plans for that is actually why I ran for the legislature. We were um, kind of consistently bumping into state policy as we were trying to solve problems creatively out in rural Oregon um, and figured I had some in-depth information that might be useful at the legislature. So I uh, (laughs) worked really hard in 2018 and got myself in, and um, now I'm working hard to stay. Aging more rapidly. Time passes the same. What are the indicators you lo- that you look at? People break hips earlier. People live uh, live not as long. What are the key indicators? So what I mean by that is that our um, average age in rural Oregon is higher than the average age in um, urban Oregon. Lots of kids will leave their small hometowns to go to universities or colleges in larger communities and build networks there and decide to stay. Um, So the average age, it's not not that a person living in the rural community is having a hard time with health. It's just the average age is higher in rural communities. What, you know, kind of sort of a brain drain, like the young folks say, get me out of here, I'm heading out? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. There aren't as many jobs um, in rural communities that are enticing for younger people. Um, And, you know, school districts aren't as good in lots of smaller towns. And so there's just so many poles to move to a more urban uh, setting that we're uh, seeing lots of older adults living without family to support them in our more rural communities across the state. Do you think that this time in history, there might be some reversal of that? As people realize that their meetings can be done by Zoom, and right now most of them are being done that way, that they might be able to have a cheaper house or maybe a bigger piece of land or maybe be near water if they were to live in Hood River or live in the Dalles or live along the Sandy River. Do you think that there might be, just by sort of the natural progression of information technology, sort of reversal of this kind of flocking to the cities? Or do you think this is something that we have to deal with structurally beyond that? I think both. Um, We are already starting to see with regard to housing sales that uh, rural homes are continuing to sell at rates um, at or above what they were prior to the pandemic. And I think that's exactly related to what you mentioned as far as people being able to work remotely and so many things being able to be done over Zoom. Um, and the pull of, you know, at least my kids could get outside and run around if we had an acre or two. Um, that's very enticing to the folks who can't afford to buy a house right now um, in a more rural community. And I think we need to look at uh, structural changes or um, updates in our, especially the way that we care for older adults and making sure that the workforce is well-trained and well-paid. Um, it's, it's really hard work and it's traditionally paid $15 an hour or less. Um, and, and so it's, you know, it's one of the most important things um, that we can do as a community is care for one another. So my, that's why my legislative focus is primarily on things like child care and elder care and making sure that um, the human beings in our communities are cared for um, in a way that really honors their dignity and their humanity. What are some of the additional job opportunities? What are ways you try to address not only what jobs exist in rural Oregon now, but elements of a, a new, new economy, a 21st century economy that could help support our rural communities? 
One of the big things is making sure everyone in Oregon has access to high-speed broadband internet. That is a challenge that we have been working on for years, um, even prior to my getting to the legislature. We were able to finally pass a 75-cent surcharge on cell phones, similar to what we used to all have on our landlines, to help pay for the installation um, of that infrastructure. So make, just making it like possible but then also looking at how do we make sure that people have access to healthcare in rural communities. Again, typically through telehealth, it's going to be a primary way. Um, and looking at the different types of job opportunities, you know, the economy is, is just in a dramatic change right now. As we respond to COVID, people are learning um, what they can do online, what they can do differently. Restaurants are changing and, you know, becoming sort of local CSAs and um, some local restaurants here in my district, started selling flour to people directly when people were unable to get it at the grocery store. Um, so, you know, the, our economies are going to continue to adapt. We need, need to make sure that the policies we put together at the state level are not unintentionally squelching economic growth in rural communities so that families can continue to live good lives um, off the I-5 corridor. No, I think the uh, whether it's farm to schools, whether it's water storage projects, whether it's uh, using other ways of government procurement to provide markets to local farmers so they don't have to ship their potatoes to China, uh, that's that's yep. big and real stuff. And and my back when I was working on water policy, what dawned on me then was that uh, urban Democrats underprioritized water resources, and rural Republicans were uh, undercomfortable in. Uh, subsidizing and paying for it and regulating those. And so we've got that that chance for an urban Democrat, or excuse me, a rural Democrat, to advocate for smart agriculture policy, which isn't just benefiting multinational agricultural conglomerates, but it's actually benefiting human beings within there and beyond their jurisdiction, but not infinitely beyond their jurisdiction. Good on you, a big deal. As for also the rural broadband thing, yeah, my plug is make it utility, make it a public thing. Other countries do better than us because we actually not only invest public money to give it over to AT&T, but because we build public apparatus that benefits the people. Yes, I wholeheartedly agree. And I think water is going to be the number one issue that we need to start addressing. And we should have been working on it as we should have been putting together good climate policy for the last 20 years. Um, the you know the water system in, on the uh, on Mount Hood is is just cobbled together through a variety of tiny little water co-ops and some for-profit companies are going in trying to buy up yep. the rights to those um, co-ops and I think we're going to find ourselves in a water crisis that we were not even aware was coming if we don't get proactive about it right now. Dig in on that. Build votes for that. Build a coalition around that. That is. There is nothing that is more important. There are other things that are also deeply important, but there, it's, th- that is tied for first because l- we can live without a bunch of stuff, can't live without water. And if it all gets privatized, we're all hosed. It's a, it's, a, it's a big, big deal. People should get become water nerds. Become water nerds. Western water policy, policy is ridiculous. And the only real solution at this point, other than changing the whole deal, is meaningful public investment into water resources, including storage projects that make sure that they are there as a dry day fund so that when there's a problem, the people have water and it's not all owned by Nestle. Sorry, I went on a little bit of a rant. I uh, <laughs> want to ask about another area of your background that's 
germane right at this moment. You talked about domestic violence response. We are seeing a spike in domestic violence in the middle of the pandemic as there's higher level of stress, greater economic stress, more people at home not getting a break from one another, higher substance use. What are your reflections on that? What are things you think ought to be done about that? With regard to the increase in rates, um, I mean, you're exactly right as to why it's happening. Um, you know, domestic violence is a is a, a play for power and control in a relationship. And when someone feels like they're losing control over the rest of their lives, as I think a lot of people feel right now, we don't know when the pandemic is going to end. We don't know how long our jobs are going to be there for us. Um, some folks who are... Um, more prone to using violence to feel like they're in control of something are, are leaning on that tactic more heavily than usual. And the, the real crisis for me is in um, child abuse in that the state recognized that domestic violence uh, was going to rise as uh, isolation continued in the pandemic and invested significant financial resources to make sure that, for instance, as shelters weren't able to house as many people because of social distancing, they had the ability to purchase hotel vouchers and people who were fleeing violence were able to stay um, anonymously at hotels in a way that kept them safe from any any perpetrator who might be looking for them. However, we have not been able to get the state to um, invest in child abuse response in the same way. Um, while those, uh, those same dynamics are occurring in families and often the most powerless person in the family is a young child, uh, we are we are not seeing the same level of investment in child abuse and child abuse um, child advocacy centers like we should. So um, my sort of hill to die on during COVID-19 um, after after making sure our farm workers were safe and protected is trying to get the state to really make meaningful investments in our child abuse uh, response networks to make sure that kids are safe, abusers are held accountable and that uh, criminal prosecutions can proceed quickly where appropriate. Um, and long, longer term, I think actually Oregon has great domestic violence policy. We have some tweaks that need to be made, which I'm, um, working on and dropping some bills that will be in the 2021 20, session if I, when I win my election. Um, but we actually are pretty, pretty well set from a policy standpoint. We now need to do the training and implementation to make sure that all the related systems, law enforcement, hospitals, schools are aware of how those policies work and can implement them properly. Your district, District 52, we're talking to Representative Anna Williams running for re-election, again, encompassing parts of uh, Clackamas, Multnomah, and Hood River counties. It is what we would call a swing district. It's a district, unlike, let's say, where I'm sitting at this moment, that a Democrat or a Republican could, could win and has recently. What are you facing in your election? It's a tough race. Um, I think this district is uniquely um, independent-minded. We That's the highest number of voters in our district are independent, registered, either not affiliated or independent party of Oregon. Um, and and voters who are Democrats or Republicans, from my calls that, with voters this time, don't feel fully represented by either party. So, um, you know, I have I am the Democrat and I am also the independent party nominee for this race. And what what this district wants is somebody who understands life in this district and is ready to stand up to either party to communicate how policies are, are will work or will not work for uh, voters in this district. So um, what I'm facing is is a lot of national dynamics in terms of um, people being close enough to Portland to be very fearful of um, the the violence and, and sometimes the biased news coverage that's addressing that violence on TV, 
um, but not necessarily close enough to really see all of the different details that are leading up to that violence. And so um, I'm, I'm pushing back a little bit against the, the national dynamic and dialogue. Um, and now that we're in this, you know, wildfire crisis, campaign, campaigning is a challenge because it's really not an appropriate thing to be doing to call people to ask for their vote uh, when they're fighting for their lives. It, campaigning in 2020, it is such an odd thing. I am still trying to get my arms around it, and it just became, in the last several days, even odder. Thank you for spending the time with us. One last question. You already asked answered the question I was going to ask about a key priority for you moving to the next session, uh, if, if and or when you win. Both of us identified things that need more investment. Uh, we both talked about water. We both talked about uh, domestic violence and support for people dealing with that. That said, going into the next session, you're not going to be dealing with big budget surpluses. You're going to be dealing with a budget almost certainly that's seeing huge revenue drops based on the economic crisis caused by our failure to deal with the pandemic. How do you wrestle with that? What do you anticipate dealing with in the budget? So I expect that the budget conversation is probably going to be one of the hardest things that all of us as legislators do um, in our lifetimes, the budget conversation that's facing us in 2021. And what I am going to do in that conversation is really focus on if we cut this dollar, what is the consequence of that cut? Uh, we will be facing massive cuts. There's no way around it. But if you look back to the cuts that were made in 2009 in response to the stock market crash of 2008, um, some of the cuts were a little bit short-sighted and in many ways have been tracked back to the homelessness crisis, the, the extent of the homelessness crisis that we're suffering now. And so um, making sure that that conversation is clear and continues to be repeated, that if we do not continue to invest in the people that live in our state um, and make priorities that are are more short-sighted, we're going to dig ourselves into another hole that is going to take us 20 years to dig out of. So um, being really smart about the unintended consequences or the potential long-term consequences of every dollar that we cut is is my primary goal um, going into the 2021 session. Anna Williams, thank you so much. And it hadn't it hadn't occurred to me that, of course, in that Fox News viewership numbers are higher in uh, Outer East Multnomah County, in uh, in Hood River County, and Clackamas County than they are in some other areas, certainly in Inner Portland. So that is something you end up talking about on the doorstep, or in this case, the Zoom meeting. Anna Williams, state representative, yes. thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks so much. Have a good day. And thanks for your service. Thanks, Representative Williams, for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in under 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing and giving a five-star review, and thank you, Democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.